Welcome to the Brodies Employment and Immigration Podcast, brought to you in association with Workbox by Brodies, our award-winning online HR and employment law resource. I'm Katie Spearman, a practice development lawyer in Brodies Employment and Immigration team, and on today's episode, I'm joined by Lynn Ma, a partner in our employment team. Welcome back to the podcast, Lynn. Thanks, Katie. Good to be back. So on today's episode, Lynn is going to be offering her expert insight into handling disciplinary and grievance investigations. We thought this would be a useful topic to cover as since the beginning of lockdown, employers have had a number of competing priorities to deal with and handling discipline and grievance investigations has has possibly not topped their agenda. Yeah, and in many cases, investigations have been delayed and we have heard of situations where employers have either put off investigating matters that had arisen at or around the start of the pandemic or even that they've held back from starting to um, investigate new matters that have arisen during lockdown, thinking that they're just going to wait until everyone's back in the office. But of course, for many office-based workers, at least, it's looking increasingly likely that they're not going to be back in the office until later this year, or indeed even into next year. Exactly. And given the ever-changing COVID-19 situation, things are still far from straightforward in terms of plans for returning to the office. So when it comes to investigations then, I think there's no question that with employees either working from home or more flexibly, carrying out investigations will be more challenging for employers at the moment, which is perhaps why people have been thinking of it more as tomorrow's task. So I guess the first point to cover, Lynn, which many employers will likely be thinking about, is can they just delay an investigation until it can be carried out safely face-to-face? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one that's come up a lot for our, our team. So the general principle that's set out in the ACAS Code of Practice on Discipline and Grievance is that employers and employees should raise and deal with issues promptly, and they, they shouldn't unreasonably delay meetings, decisions, or confirming those decisions. So I think that simply kicking disciplinary and grievance issues and investigations into the long grass is, is really not something to be recommended. And this point's been reiterated in some recent guidance from ACAS, hasn't it, on handling discipline and grievance procedures specifically during the pandemic? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The guidance makes it clear that despite the additional pressures that many employers will be facing at this time and the practical challenges in holding investigation meetings, procedures must still be taken forward without unreasonable delay. So, um, you know, if a workplace is open and meetings can be conducted face to face in a safe manner, in line with all the guidelines, of course, in safe working and the employer having carried out relevant risk assessments, then an employer can carry on with a face to face investigation. But if that's not possible, then consideration will have to be given to conducting any necessary investigations remotely, provided that that can be done in a fair way. Yeah, absolutely. What I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes to the recent ACAS guidance, so it's handy if if you want to take a more detailed look at that. But the message, like you said, Lynn, seems to be very much that it's not something to be delaying unnecessarily. So if an employer did decide to delay an investigation... What harm would that do, Lynn? Well, if the matter is a minor one, then delay might not matter at all, really. But delaying an investigation where the matter is into something more serious, like um, something that's gross misconduct or a serious grievance that has been raised by an employee, means that the memories of all the witnesses are likely to fade or become unreliable and evidence might simply be lost. And that's going to impact on the ability of the investigator to make robust findings of fact and then ultimately on on the reasonableness of the investigation. Yeah, and I suppose at the beginning of lockdown, an employer might have perhaps been forgiven if there was some delay, particularly 
if they'd furloughed workers, as I know there was some uncertainty about whether taking part in an investigation could constitute work and and therefore if it was permitted in terms of the, the job retention scheme. But as time goes on, those issues have been clarified and as we know, the furlough schemes gradually being phased out over the next few months up to the end of October. So employment tribunals might be less forgiving about lengthy delays in starting or concluding investigations. Yeah, indeed. And like you say, there is more clarity now. And we have the updated ACAS guidance for employers to, to refer to. Yeah, so, so moving on to the investigation itself, Lynn, perhaps you could explain why carrying out an investigation where grievances have been raised or in cases of alleged misconduct is so important? Uh, Well, it's important because a fair and reasonable investigation is central to a fair dismissal where there's an allegation of misconduct. Without it, it's quite impossible to arrive at a genuine and reasonably held belief that an employee has committed an act of misconduct that merits dismissal. And and that's a test that must be satisfied for an employment tribunal. Um, Similarly, if a grievance is raised in relation to unfavourable or discriminatory treatment, an employer is going to struggle to establish that there was a non-discriminatory reason for particular treatment without having done a reasonable investigation into the reasons for the alleged treatment. And of course, the ACAS Code of um, Conduct on Discipline and Grievance makes it clear that the reasonableness of a dismissal or a grievance outcome is dependent on there having been a fair investigation carried out. And also failure to follow the code will be taken into account by tribunals, won't it, when they're assessing the reasonableness of the dismissal and, and it could lead to an, an uplift in, in compensation if an employee is successful in their tribunal claim. So a robust investigation really is the bedrock for, for any decisions that follow. So with that in mind, Lynn, what are your top tips for ensuring an investigation is reasonable or, as we've said, sufficiently robust? Well, probably more than we've got time to cover, but um, here's my top ones. So I think firstly, it's important to get the right investigator. Uh, You need to check your discipline and grievance policy or procedure because that might say something about who it is that should be appointed in your organisation. But you might also want to think about whether you need a specialist investigator. So for example, if somebody um, is needed who's had specialist training in handling equal opportunities where there's been a sexual harassment claim or or something like that, if that's at the centre of what's being investigated. And you might also want to think about whether it should in fact be somebody external to your organisation. I mean, that might not be common, but sometimes you might bring in somebody Um, externally for example a lawyer it just sometimes is appropriate where you need somebody that's truly independent or someone who's really skilled in collecting and analyzing the evidence interviewing witnesses and presenting the conclusions in a logical and impartial way yeah and also appointing an external investigator can also be beneficial when it comes to carrying out a timely investigation I think often sometimes when you appoint someone internally they then have to try and juggle that with their day job. And it's often that which then slows down the investigation process somewhat. Yeah, exactly. But also during these times, it may also just be difficult to find an appropriate internal investigator, particularly if staff have been furloughed and they're just not about. So it is important, though, that whoever is appointed should be appropriately experienced in conducting investigations and they need to know the organisation and be available There's no point in appointing an investigator um, at this time of year, particularly where they might be about to go on holiday. So it's important that they aren't somebody also who's expressed any kind of concluded view about the outcome of the investigation. 
somebody who's a significant witness themselves or has a connection with anybody involved or has any, had any kind of prior difficult interactions with, with those involved or, or who would be in line to hear an appeal. So all those things are things that you really need to think about um, when you're making a decision about who's going to be an appropriate investigator. It's quite a checklist, isn't it? But very useful to know what things employers should be thinking about when they're making their decision about who to appoint. And I suppose as well in smaller organisations, finding someone appropriate is, is also going to be a bit more tricky. And again, that might be a situation where someone who's independent would be useful. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's important to make sure the investigator appointed understands their role as well. Um, and that's to gather facts and assess credibility and decide which version of events is on balance more likely to be true and form a view about whether there's a case to answer. They're not decision makers. They're not there um, and required to make any recommendations about a disciplinary or a, a grievance outcome. Yeah, it's important that roles are clearly defined and the investigator should be very clear as well about what the issues are that need to be investigated. I guess that will then drive the decisions on who witness evidence is needed from or other evidence that needs to be gathered. Indeed, planning is key. and That's another one of my top tips for investigation meetings. You really do need to think about practical issues if you're an investigator, such as what information the witnesses are going to need in advance, arranging for note takers. Um, if witnesses are to be accompanied, even if they don't have a, a right to be, then you need to make sure that witnesses will understand what's going to happen with the information they need that you're giving to them. Can you promise confidentiality? Who might see witness statements? Again, another bit of a, a checklist to think about. But um, it, it's also a good idea to prepare clear questions for witnesses in advance of meetings so that you can be sure that you do ask all the particular witnesses about all the things that they can speak to. And it is important, again, maybe in their top tip, is that when you're preparing questions as an investigator, that you use open questions. So you need to be using the sort of who, what, where, when type questions, because that's a good tip for gathering information. Um, and also use questions which are simple, so that you're only getting one fact per question. All these things help to avoid confusion in what's being asked. Um, I think at the same time, the investigator has to remember that they shouldn't stick slavishly to the questions that they've pre-prepared. They have to be able to adapt to what it is that's presented to them or what they're hearing. Absolutely. And as well as sort of pitching the right questions, it's also about listening carefully to, to the answers that witnesses are given and sort of questioning those where, where it's necessary. And in fact, looking out for the witnesses' behaviours can actually be just as important as their verbal answers to questions, can't it? So thinking about whether they're being guarded or open in their responses. Are their answers detailed or perhaps a bit vague in places? And also, what's their body language like? These are all things you can look out for and pay attention to, whether that's in person or on a video call. Exactly. All of these, those things will be relevant to the investigator's assessment of the reliability of the witness or their credibility and the value of their evidence. Um, and in terms of follow-up from the meeting, the investigator shouldn't delay in recording their findings. So that, that's another tip. Um, and obviously it's best to do that in a in a written report. Yeah, so just picking up on, on the written report, Lynn, so what sort of things should be included in that? Um, well, it's quite straightforward, really, but ideally you need to just set out the background. So set out the methodology you used, the findings of fact, provide a summary with all your conclusions and any recommendations on whether you think there's a case to answer or whether there are facts which would allow a grievance to be upheld. 
um, you should probably append all the documents and evidence and statements that you're relying on to the report. Um, but above all, I'd recommend just using plain English. Um, if you're going to use acronyms, have a key that sets out what they all mean and use things like numbered paragraphs and headings just to keep everything really organised and clear and easy to read. That's great. Thanks, Lynn. Some great tips there, which I think the listeners will find really useful. So if we turn now to focus more on remote investigations, as this will be the prospects that, that a lot of employers will be facing, is there anything else that an investigator will need to think about if they're going to be carrying out remote investigation meetings? Yeah, I think there's quite a lot of extra things. Um, an important first consideration for the investigator to think about is really whether it's right to conduct the investigation remotely at all. They should be thinking about things like the seriousness of the allegations, because if the matter is a minor one, then maybe it can wait, as I mentioned before. But if it's very serious, delay in being able to carry out a face-to-face investigation might mean that you just have to press on and do the investigation as fairly as you possibly can, remotely keeping in mind the ACAS guidance that we mentioned before. Um, The second big thing to think about really is the availability of technology. Do you have the facilities to be able to carry out meetings remotely via video conferencing, for example? And if so, do the witnesses, will they be able to use effectively to participate in meetings? There, There might be some individuals who find it really difficult to take part in remote hearings, for example, if they suffer from particular disabilities. And so you might also have to consider whether for those individuals there are any adjustments that can be made to help them participate. Yeah, technology's an important one, isn't it? It's brilliant if it all works, but it can cause a lot of hassle if if not. And I think employees, particularly those who've been working from home, have, have had a bit of a crash course in, in using new technology um, through necessity over the last four to five months. But as you say, not everyone's in the same boat and might not be quite as confident in, in using the technology that they're going to need to carry out the investigation remotely. And I suppose as well, there's the issue of evidence. So how will documents, CCTV or, or other evidence be viewed in remote investigations? Yeah, availability of evidence is a, is a crucial consideration for there to be a fair process. Um, and, and part really of the overall logistics, which also require a bit of thought. For example, if a witness is going to be accompanied, how is that going to be done? Can the companion be safely in the room with the interviewee? Or are they going to join separately? And if so, how will they consult with the interviewee where that's needed? You might need to think about having um, you know, a separate breakout room or if you can't do that, is it going to be possible for everyone to dial off and then dial back in? All of these factors need to be carefully thought through in advance of any remote hearings. And there are similar challenges for note takers. I mean, almost all investigators will hopefully um, have a, a note taker who can help them to take notes um, and they're going to carry out a key role in any investigation meeting. So again, you need to think about whether they can be safely with the investigator for the meeting or are they going to be sitting separately and and dialing in? Yeah, I think note takers, they're crucial to the process and they're going to have to be trying to keep up with with what everyone's saying. I think this can be difficult enough, a job face-to-face when you're carrying out meetings in person, but I can imagine it's perhaps even more challenging when someone's on the other end of the video camera remotely and I know from using video calling myself that it's sometimes hard to tell when one person's finished and the next person can can often end up talking over over each other quite a lot. So it's sometimes quite tricky, isn't it? Yeah, I can relate to that too. I think we've all been doing it. So uh, note, note takers just have to be made aware that they can interrupt if they haven't heard and they haven't been able to accurately capture the proceedings. 
Um, and of course, the same is true of interviewees as well. Um, I think we've all really heard now about Zoom and Teams fatigue. It's it's a thing. So it's important for the investigator to allow for that possibility, to kind of watch out for signs of it and allow for regular breaks so that the witnesses really can provide all the evidence that they need to in an effective way. I think whilst we're on the topic of Zoom and video calling platforms, perhaps one of the biggest issues with remote hearings conducted using them is the ease with which they can be recorded, both with the participants' knowledge, but also covertly. Um, It's really tempting, I think, probably for interviewees to just hit the record button or for for the investigator to do that. But there's a a risk in doing it because of the possibility of, of breaching data protection laws, as recordings will compromise the personal data of all the participants and others who are identified in the discussions. The ACAS guidance confirms that for most disciplinary or grievance meetings held by video, there won't be any real need or reason to make a video recording of the meeting. So you should think about that carefully. Remind employees and anyone accompanying them that they shouldn't make electronic recordings of the meeting without your agreement Um, and explain to them how the meeting will be recorded. So if that's by way of a note, then tell them that there will be a note produced that they will be able to review it shortly after the investigation meeting and uh, make any suggestions about any amendments. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the last thing you want is for a misunderstanding in relation to to what's permitted. And like you say, the data protection considerations will be extremely important. Our colleague Kathleen Morrison has written a really useful blog about recording video call disciplinary and, and other employee meetings, which covers all the things you need to know. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a really useful one. Also, I guess quite closely connected to the topic of recording and data protection is the issue of confidentiality, isn't it, Lynn? Yeah, confidentiality is another concern. So at the start of any face-to-face investigation meetings, an investigator will explain that the meeting is confidential and shouldn't be discussed with other employees or anyone else. But when the meeting is being conducted remotely, the investigator's got no real way of knowing who's in the background, maybe out of sight, but in earshot or on another device and able to assist the witness who's being interviewed. So the investigator will need to ask the employee to confirm that they are in a suitable place to be interviewed and remind them about confidentiality, including around things like documents that might have been disclosed to them for the purposes of the meeting and which in normal circumstances um, might stay in the physical room if the investigation is being conducted face to face. Yes, there's definitely some food for thought there for listeners and quite a few extra considerations to bear in mind. So just to finish, Lynn, I wanted to ask you, do you think that the pandemic has altered the way that investigations will be conducted going forward? I suppose in a similar sort of way as people are now predicting that the pandemic's fundamentally changed the way they work and and where people are working. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the answer is yes, it probably will. At the moment, people are still obviously being encouraged to work from home where possible. Um, And many employers are content to facilitate long term home working, like Twitter, for example, because they see it as a good thing to do. And perhaps for many, it helps to reduce overheads. But even where um, workplaces are opening back up, employees are often having to attend on a a staggered basis, maybe two or three days a week to help reduce the risk of infection. Um, And we're also faced with the prospect of local lockdowns, such as those that we've seen in Dumfries in Scotland and places like Leicester in England. So the workplace is changing and and not in a way which is conducive to easily carrying out face-to-face investigation meetings. So it's quite possible that in the longer term we will see a move to remotely conducted investigations in the same way as we're seeing a rise in um, homeworking. So it's a good idea for employers to get used to the idea now and to start to find some workarounds for some of the challenges that we've discussed. 
Yeah, I think I tend to agree with the improvements in technology, COVID, and and like you say, a rise in homeworking. Remote investigations are perhaps on their way to becoming more the norm in the future. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. Thanks very much, Lynn, for, for sharing your practical advice and tips. And thank you for listening. If you do have any questions in relation to any of the points we've discussed in today's episode, then please feel free to contact Lynn. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be more than happy to answer any questions. And our team members can act as independent investigators or simply help listeners to train their managers on how to carry out investigations effectively. If you want any information on that, you can just contact your usual Bodhi's contact. Thanks, Lynn. That's great. And I'll put a link to your contact details in the show notes. Thanks, Katie. That's great. Also, if you're a Workbox by Brodie's user, you can find lots of information on investigations on our dedicated pages. And for more information on employment issues related to coronavirus more generally, you can visit our Workbox coronavirus pages, which are free to view for everyone at the moment. And you can find those by searching for coronavirus on our website, www.brodies.com.